Hello and welcome to the final show for the month of January for Crackle Comics. This is episode 27. I'm Mike alongside with Vincent. Vince, how was your week? Um, not good. Oh, that's that's not good. Not not starting off with on a good note. But Vince, you ready to talk comics? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was just talking comics. Recent comics. Comics that came out this week. I think you made the same comment last week. Yeah. So it's a semi-gimmick now. But in terms of comics that have come out this week, we're going to kick off with Amazing Spider-Man number 45, Nick Spencer, and ooh, it's Mark Bagley joining the art team with John Dell and Andy Owens on inks. And this is part one of Sins Rising, as we've been teased with it for the last two weeks. And this is the start. The open sees the return of Spidey ex-girlfriend Carly Cooper getting ready to perform an autopsy, which we last saw her, um, as this recaps her history, last saw her in that superhero kind of support group for people that were like friends or in relationships with superheroes where she kind of has a friendship sparked with MJ. We saw that, but this is her, what she's been up to. She's now back with the police department um, as a CSI. Well, I guess no. Yeah, I guess it would be a CSI, right? I don't know. But we flashed to Pete where we recap his current situation, which we saw that intersects with Amazing Mary Jane number six, where we saw how they got separated and I think that book got canceled. I, I don't know if it's coming back or not, waiting to see what, what the verdict is on that. But I, I'm seeing on Twitter that apparently it's got canceled, according to the cover artist, but I'm not, I don't know for sure. We do see this is where it intersects with that Sins Rising prelude where Spider-Man runs into Overdrive with Peter's nightmare becoming a reality as he st- tries to stop Overdrive where he's running from the Sin Eater. And that's where we get Spidey has a showdown with the Sin Eater and that's where Overdrive shoots and kills him and he's got this new gun and gimmick that can shoot through people and it literally eats their sins and he takes them on. So his gun like literally shoots through Spider-Man to to get to Overdrive and it kills him. But back on the autopsy table, we see that Carly Cooper is getting ready to perform one on Overdrive and then Overdrive wakes up. So it looks like gun or power gimmick is stealing the the sins and actually giving them to sin eater and he's absolving them so uh, then bringing them back so maybe overdrive becomes like a pseudo good guy or something we'll we'll see and then of course the seeds for kindred still planted in the background i like this i thought bagley's pencils for the most part were good um it is kind of fun to see him back on the interiors of amazing spider-man as i i don't remember the last time he would been on amazing spider-man i know that Obviously, he has the acclaimed run in Ultimate Spider-Man, and we've saw him on Life Story, but I can't remember the last time we saw him on Amazing. I feel like it's more recent than I'm thinking, but I enjoyed this. Um, I'm interested to see what exactly is going to happen. I'll open it up to my co-host, Vince. I don't know. I'm kind of... Uh, this Nick Spencer run isn't really holding my attention much. I don't know why. I'm going to blame some of it on both paradoxically both the advanced shipping schedule for amazing spider-man it comes out way too much but also the shutdown and also i've kind of even when it has been coming out i've sometimes skipped an issue or missed a show and stuff like that i don't know it's just there's so many things he teased like literally in the first like three issues which he's just been dangling for like 45 issues and i don't like i don't really I don't know. I just don't quite have the patience. I don't trust that it's leading to something satisfactory because obviously in that first issue or two, certain things were teased or certain things were perhaps falsely interpreted by certain fans, including me. 
And I don't trust that Marvel or Nick Spencer are going to deliver on some of that. Uh, It's just kind of a a mix. There's lots of decompression here. I mean, it is kind of like Ultimate Spider-Man in that sense. I honestly feel like Dan Slott's... Never mind. I'm not going to compare to Dan Slott. You can't even get away with saying this runs better than... No, that's not what I was going to say. say. No, I was going to say Dan Slott's run felt like more things were happening. That's definitely not true. It felt less decompressed. But um, there's a really weird thing here where... And I tried to double-check this, but... Stop playing with the microphone. (laughs) Well, I'm playing with with the lid of this. All right. Um, So I tried to double-check this, and when I double-checked it, it just confused me further. But I think Overdrive's real name has never been stated before. Yeah, this is the first time it's stated. I think it's a reveal here, but it's a reveal in a scene where you're supposed to be like, oh, my God, he's alive. But, like, it's not like Overdrive behind the mask has an instantly recognizable appearance. It's not like he has a scar or anything. He's just, like, a black dude. You know, no particular emphasis on black, but that is the primary descriptive thing that you're going to, you know, put for that character. He doesn't have a signature haircut. He doesn't have, like, I don't know, anything. So it's like uh, a dude woke up in the morgue, and here's his name. But... This is the first time you're ever saying his name. It's just really weird, if that's correct. I thought his death scene was handled pretty emotionally, though. Like, yeah, I mean, his his death scene's fine, but also like the Sin Eater being back. Like, I thought the 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 preludish or whatever the hell they called that stupid thing before this, I thought that was more enjoyable and interesting. That had a little bit, it had way more interesting art. There was some experimental and trippy elements to that, and obviously they straight up pulled pages. But in this issue, like Sin Eater being back kind of feels, it doesn't feel as dramatic in this issue as it was presented in that one. And it's just like, oh, here's another villain. And and he's just a pawn for, I don't even remember the guy's name. Kindred. Uh, Scorpion dude. Not Scorpion, Centipede dude. Centipede man. Yeah, I don't know. And then the Mary Jane tease is very weird because it's like, it's like, hey, that series is supposed to be between arcs and our, our characters are supposed to converge, but like that series is canceled. So like, how does that impact this? Yeah. I, I think it definitely, I, we've had Spider-Man come out now technically for three straight weeks because we had 44, then the prelude issue. Now this, so it, I don't know. I'm almost enjoying it that way just because, okay, it, it in succession, it doesn't feel like we have another break and a wait for setup. So we're getting right to it. I enjoyed the issue. I'm waiting to see where it goes. Uh, how they handle the new power set for uh, Sinitor, I am wondering. Because, like, if Overdrive becomes, like, a pseudo-good guy, that's kind of cool, at least. They're doing something with a more D-list villain. So we'll see what happens. But you got a, you got a summer, summer special to talk about. Yeah. So DC... I don't know if it's supposed to be possessive. But the title of this is kind of weird. It doesn't really... Off tongue. DC Cybernetic Summer is one of DC's 80 page giant anthology issues that they do about four or five times a year for $10. And number one, it helps the books in a certain sense. You get, you know, helps out your dollar share. But it, it's these issues also serve as a mix of allowing top tier creators to do something small and quick, slide that in somewhere. And it's also a spot for young guns to kind of get some experience or for DC to test them out and things like that. So we have 
big names like Gabriel Hardman and Nicola Scott drawing stories here. On the other hand, I've never heard of Che Grayson or Liz Erickson. The Hardman story, which is uh, co-written from his uh, wife and frequent collaborator, Corinna Bechko, it's Batman in space in a mech suit dealing with Brother Eye, and Alfred has to pull away from his beach vacation to save the day. It looks real nice. It has some neat moments, like uh, Batman has to escape out of his mech suit because Brother Eye has taken control of it and is going to basically like kill Batman inside the suit. So he jumps out of the suit, so then he's... I mean, he's in a, he's in a uh, satellite, so it's not like he's exposed to raw space, but he's out having to hold his breath and get oxygen. And obviously before that, he was trapped in this suit that Brother Eye had taken control of. So there's some tense moments and Alfred, you know, it's a ticking clock. Alfred has to, you know, do whatever on his dumb phone in time before Bruce dies. But it, 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 it isn't a super standout story in my opinion. But it's it's all right as a as is one of the headliners here. Nicola Scott draws a Wonder Woman and Metal Men team up. Um, it's really more of a Wonder Woman and Platinum, aka Tina from the Metal Men team up, against the rest of the Metal Men, which is fun in an old Brave and the Bold kind of way. And this is something that I wish we saw more in the regular books. Like the regular books, everything's written for the trade, and each trade is like, here's the Batman villain of the trade. You know, here's the Clayface story. Here's the Joker story. Here's the overblown story with the Joker and the Clayface. But it's like, there's not as much room for the Metal Men or Red Tornado to show up in a Batman story. And those characters show up in this issue. And this, but this story is kind of weird because it turns into a Toy Man story. He's ultimately the actual villain. And it's like an anime joke. Wonder Woman watches anime. The Metal Men watch anime. And Toy Man hacked, took over the Metal Men to like recreate a scene from the anime that they all watch. It's kind of weird, but it's kind of funny. And Nicole Scott is, you know, Wonder Woman classic artist, and she draws a uh, platinum pretty uh, interesting as well. There's a cute Red Tornado story about family. It's doing the same thing that you see from Vision. That that's that's what it is here. Um, but it, it's a cute little story. There's a multiverse flash race from Josh Williamson, which I don't care at all about, but it's cool if you're a Flash fan, if you've been following Williamson's run, this, this issue is worth tracking down for that. Now, the absolute highlight of this issue, which I did not expect at all, is this Superboy and the Legion story. But And I was going to completely actually skip this story, but first you realize that it stars Clark Kent Superboy, not... Connor or whatever the current status quo is. It's set in Smallville, Kansas. And the weird part, and I don't understand current Bendis Legion continuity, but Lightning Lad is white here. And my understanding is that Bendis's Lightning Lad is black and it's the same Lightning Lad from the original. He just changed it. So I don't know how that works. But the Legion are doing something in Smallville and then it's like, obviously it becomes a bigger thing than just Smallville. So Superboy has to go off with them. And because he's going to be gone for a while, he opens his closet and winds up one of his Superboy robots um, because he's going on this extensive mission. So he's just going to have a robot pretend to be him yeah, at school with his friends, at the diner, being Superboy for like a week or whatever. But then the story actually gets really fucked up. Um, the Legion thing, it's never fully explained, which is 
good. It's some kind of like alien goo thing or like a parasite kind of thing. And it turns out that it had attached, I guess, to the Superboy robot or one of them had. And whether it's that thing controlling it or it's a confluence or something, the Superboy robot starts hanging out with this nerdy girl. Of course, she wears glasses just like Clark. And she's studying robotics. And they kind of like get into each other. And then then and they're like at a drive-in date talking about the Superboy robot, who of course she doesn't know is a robot. And and it's he's in Clark's, he's in Clark mode. It's not like he's on a date with her in a cape. But you know, he's like like they're really getting along. They're at this drive-in movie date, and then suddenly shit's going down. So he has this girl jump out of the car, and then the Legion show up. And real Clark, Superboy, like basically is like, hey, robot, let me help you. Your programming's messed up. I have to reset you. So he, they like click something and then they pull out the alien goo thing. And I don't, they don't really show what they do with it. But, you know, from Superboy and the Legion's perspective, it's like, oh, we saved the day. The robot was messed up. But there's like a panel where like it goes black and like the robot doesn't have consciousness or, or its memories reset or whatever. And then the final scene is Clark at the end, at the summer's over and he shows up to school and the girl is like, Hey Clark, I didn't see you all summer. I want to tell you about this thing I discovered or, you know, advanced on. And Clark's like, Oh, he's like, Oh may that's your name. Right. And he's like, Oh, nice to see you. And he just walks away, you know, cause like he doesn't really know this girl. Um, but this girl had like a crush on him and they had this genuine connection, but it was the robot imposter. So this story is like a wild mix of retro Silver Age vibes, a bit of like Archie comics, like teen romance. There's a diner scene. There's the drive-in. There's, you know, a, almost like a love triangle misunderstanding kind of thing. And then it's got this Twilight Zone twist about, you know, identity and robots and things like that, all in just eight pages. And even the whole, the actual mechanic of it, the alien goo thing, that's basically the, you know, the 90s Supergirl story. Um, so that was the definite highlight here. On the other hand, I'm not really sure about this Midnight and uh, Midnighter and Apollo story. It's like, it's drawing comparisons between their relationship and that of Monster Mala and the brain, which I don't know, it's just a weird territory to go in. And then there's a story by Max Bemis, um, current, or I guess former, besides this Doom Patrol writer, and it's a robot man. He's having a bummy day. He tries hanging out with his like best friend roommate, who's a you know totally normal, regular human, and he just kind of never gets along. Like some girl walks up to him at a bar, and he's like, he thinks this girl is about to you know engage in conversation with him, and she's like, "Do you have Wi-Fi?" And he's like, "Yes." But then robots show up for like a robot hangout. So then he takes his human friend and they hang out with Cyborg, Red Tornado, and the Metal Men, including their version of Smoking Hookah, where they like hook themselves up to USB drives and like, I don't know, test different programs or something. I don't know. And then in the end, they're like, you know, how do we do it our own way so that we're both happy and everything like that? And everyone goes to a comic shop. So that's a nice story. Um, anything I didn't mention isn't worth mentioning. But I would say overall, um, mixed bag like all of these, like I introduced it. But this one was, it, it was pretty fun. I, I read the Gabe Hardman Batman story, didn't really care for it, but Gabe Hardman's art, it's always yeah. good. Like but I said, that I 
Yeah, I mean, really like I said, that one was executed well, but I actually would, I think putting it first kind of deceives the kind of overall tone and, and purpose of the issue because it's supposed to be like, it's mostly issue, it's mostly stories of like C-list, like robotic slash, you know, that kind of vein characters um, and the bat, the brother eye, like who cares? All right, yeah. Empire Number 3, written by Al Ewan and Dan Slott, art by Valeria Shidi. The war on Earth is at full scale with the Katadi beating up some humans, which you don't, I mean, you don't really see much of it. Like, they're not showing any destruction here. It's just like you see crowd shots of Katadi, and they're really just fighting the superheroes. Like, they're not showing us humans getting fucked up. But there's some nonsense about Hulkling attempting, uh, they're also, the same note, there's there's some like throwaway line like Hulkling tried to set up rules of engagement, but the the scrolls and the Kree are so used to war that they are not really paying much attention to it. It's like I don't know are are scrolls using tear gas? Like otherwise, this is a war. The scroll and Kree are actual like empires that have been at war for thousands of years with each other, have tons of experience. Like Katadi are like literally trying to kill everyone who has flesh. It's just, a, it's, it's just, I don't know. I guess it's Marvel trying to be dumb. Like, oh, none of our heroes hurt people. And we had the same moment, I think, in issue one or two where, I don't know, whoever it was, like Captain America or, or maybe it was Captain Marvel or, or whatever, is like, hey, don't kill people. Tony is rage quitting about how this is kind of all his fault and how he's a dum-dum because he's trying to, like, hack something. And Reed is just, quietly judging him like yeah this is your fault you're a dumb dumb and stop insulting my brother-in-law the war in wakanda uh we get some scenes of that and that's hitting on all those infinity war vibes but i'm also reminded actually of secret invasion and the black panther tie-ins um because obviously going to war with wakanda tricky business and there's a sensible explanation because i was wondering you know why is wakanda such a big focus but it's like duh these plant people want the vibranium enriched soil so they can grow super strong soldiers and weapons and things like that. And then I think I even questioned I'm in my previous synopses for this series or comments. I may have even said that I doubted this character would appear or maybe I was waiting. I don't, I'm sure I referenced before, but Mantis shows up here and she's going to talk to her son. And I kind of didn't expect that, even though obviously this entire story is calling back to Celestial Madonna and it would make total sense, but her continuity has gotten so confusing when she turned, you know, from an Asian woman to a green person and joined the Guardians of the Galaxy. I wasn't sure whether to expect her because it would just, it might just be too confusing, but she shows up and she's going to attempt the diplomacy angle. Carol is almost ready to stab herself again and turn herself into another nuke but teddy is being a little bitch so he teleports the sword away to black panther to do something and the big twist here is that one of the kree generals is actually teddy's grandma an empress of the scrolls she died on panel i believe in john burns fantastic four run when galactus ate the scroll throne world that's the big twist here i don't know still nothing much actually happened in this issue but there were some interesting new twists, and the art is the art is good. I really like the double page splash in Wakanda with the thing punching a bunch of plants. Um, that's about it.
I think I'm having a problem with these Empire issues because, like, I feel like as soon as I read them, I half forget what happens in them because not a whole lot happens in each issue anyway. Yeah. How long is this? I think it's only, like, six issues too, right? Yeah. This isn't, like, one of the super long ones. It's not a lot has happened yet. Yeah. Um, but, I'm still enjoying it. The yeah. The thing on Wakanda was fun. And, uh, I, I mean, I have to assume that Dan Slott's re- writing the Fantastic Four parts because he's helming that book. And I know that Al Ewing's probably helming the the uh, the Avengers parts, at least. But I, I feel like there's a lot of placement on Tony, like, self-guilt again, which I feel like that's something that we keep doing as well with his character that I wish we could get past that. Cause now he's been wallowing for like pretty much every issue of the series now. And I'd wish, for, um, but, and then like the, the space crew's just kind of still hanging out in space. So I agree with you. I wish we would see more of the devastation that's going on than cause it feels like right now, three issues and it's just people talking around tables, but that's, that's event comics right now. And, you know, probably issues four through six will be all fighting. Yeah. Granted, I only recently have been seeing him in event books and team books like this, but I'm kind of questioning if I just don't like Iron Man at all anymore, or, or this modern version of Iron Man. I, I, uh, I wish Dan was here and we could really have a discussion about that, because I think he would have the ultimate opinion when it comes to characterizations of Tony Stark, but I, I think ever, ever since Robert Downey Jr., it's you're, you're never getting classic Tony again. Probably well, it's not, 15 years. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even really talking that much about, like, his character voice. I'm more just, like, the way he's used in the team books, in the events. It's like, he's always a martyr or, oh, I made this mistake, but I'm going to fix it all. And it's like, I don't know, like, can he just be, like, Captain America? Not like Captain America, but just, like, a superhero, like, who has a suit. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. It's ever since Civil War, we've made Tony the the kind of the root of all the problems. It seems for the Marvel Universe, and I wish we would just stop it. But that's like almost twenty years at this point, you know. Like, let's get over it. <laughs> yeah, or the solution, or whatever. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know how to um, put it into words. But yeah, no, yeah. But I, I'm still enjoying this event. Definitely feels like more of an event superheroes fighting superheroes which have been critical but sticking with empire empire captain america number one this is philip kennedy johnson writing ariel olivetti on art i'll say right now i like the art team uh writing team uh this is not great this is the first empire centric thing that i haven't really enjoyed this by the way stating to marvel's checklist this takes place before empire number three so, so you know we've covered this out of order on the show but if you're following along at home uh, through your checklist, this takes place before. A Washington, D.C. unit is pinned down by the Katati forces, but they're saved by Cap as he leaps into the battle and saves them. And then one of the squad, his squad, his name is Bennett, is cut by the Katati general, like, on the face, and everyone just kind of ignores it. And, like, you clearly it's played that this is going to come back to bite them later as he's been infected by something and he's the sleeper agent now. Cap's been helping the squad kind of take back and fight back for Washington, D.C., and they succeed. And this spurs Cap going to one of the generals in the Pentagon for more men to be deployed in the South as that's where the real fight's taking place and they need more people down there to help. And of course, the general is just like, no, because we need to defend here and I don't want to give up men for countries that won't repay us back later. So you know all that dumb bullshit. And 
you know so cap just kind of goes outside and just rallies a speech and like all the squads out there are like we view you more as a field general than the actual people inside so we'll follow cap wherever he goes so he gets the squads to go down south anyway with him and then we see bennett back inside the pentagon and like he is there and like through the whole issue now he's like oh i'm not feeling so good so he goes inside then he meets the general and of course he infects the general with like the sleeping spores from the katati so now the the general is under influence and like all the ones or sleeper agents are activated so we got this giant katati mountain man thing forming in the side of a mountain so we got that to deal with now i will not be reading the rest of this it was not great pretty pretty meh all around but happy to see ariel olivetti's art uh good captain america art there but other than this, you know, nothing special. Only the first thing through Empire that I haven't enjoyed, though. So at least at least you got that there. Uh, Vince, you're going to talk about Hedra now. Yes. Hedra is written and drawn and everything by Jesse Lonergan. It's published by Image. This is a silent issue, and there's some interesting color choices as well. It's exponentially more indie than anything we usually read for the show, and even what image usually publishes. It's about a nuclear war, then attempts to escape Earth and colonize other bodies. This astronaut by themselves, I guess, runs into a giant cyborg guy and both deal with aliens on a planet that they run into. She finds a sword and saves him. So then he takes her to this like cube structure. She becomes one of them, whatever that means, then reseeds the Earth. That's it. Apparently this was originally published on newsprint. I'm not sure exactly what that means. If that means it was at like full broadsheet size, that would be really dope. But this, as far as I know, this is definitely a one shot. And um, if you're looking for something more experimental and just very interesting on the art side, again, this is entirely silent, definitely worth a read in my opinion. But I can't no, I agree. say much more. Yeah, I, I wish... I. It, reading it digitally, I felt like it almost did a dis- injustice because I, I really wanted to have like a feeling of the page there to, to kind of follow it better with my eyes, especially when you have two pages, you know, lined up side by side like that and not just one page view, one page view. Um, I am very curious as well about the newsprint uh, that you mentioned as I read the back matter material as well. Um, if it was very broad, big newsprint, that'd be very cool to see. I, I am wowed by the color in this. Though. I love the great use of color the line work here is impeccably great and interesting to look at i did feel it's very at least for me it was a little non-linear to follow so i wish it was a little bit more linearly able to follow if you weren't going to use dialogue Um, but something very very interesting and i also feel worth checking out though kind of sticking with indies you're gonna talk about another image book this is image right yeah lost soldiers number one yes Written by Alice Cott, art by Luca Casalanguida. Um, and they've worked together on James Bond before. This is set in 1960. Well, part of this is set in 1969 Vietnam and GIs. They're having some, some banter arguing between John Wayne versus Superman as the ultimate American hero and who would fix Vietnam. A firefight goes south, some folks die, and then these two dudes become friends. And then somehow in the present or closer to the present, they're doing missions as spec ops guys. Um, I'm not entirely certain if they actually, I think they work for the CIA or like something like that. I don't think they're like private 
like Blackwater or anything like that. But they're doing missions along the border between the cartels. And I don't know how the timeline works because if this is set in 2020, they're at least 68 years old minimum, assuming they cheated and like were sent to Vietnam at like age 17 or something. The art is quite trippy at points, nearing that Apocalypse Now aesthetic, especially in the Vietnam scenes and scenes in the present where there's kind of like a hallucination slash PTSD kind of slant in a couple panels. Cot, his scripting is too verbose at times, but the language that he does use, it's very strong. It's quite poetic. So I would say overall, this is, it's a good issue. It's a good series. I'm just not sure how the balance of the two timelines is going to be handled moving forward and how they will be intertwined and such. I found this, the pages and sequences set in the past in the Vietnam era exponentially more interesting and way more attractive on the art side, um, especially when it comes to color. I would say this is, this is definitely a, a series worth checking out. And I will do so with number two. That Texas Blood number two, I think this is going to round out our kind of indie books all in a row. Is that just kind of how it worked out in a rundown this week? Chris Condon, Jacob Phillips. And this is, as I said, Texas Blood number two. And we open with Sheriff Joe Bob from the issue one. He gets a call in the middle of the night where also he's up anyway because he can't sleep and he's painting model airplanes. Um, and he gets a call to investigate a dead body out in the middle of the desert, which I feel like this is the scene of the murder we saw back in issue one um but it's not explicitly stated it looks like the same location and we see a man but then after that we flash to a man named randall who's awoken in the middle of the night to what he believes is his brother in like the doorway but he knows his brother's not there but his brother's in the name of travis and but he does get a call um saying that his brother has died and he's got to go out to his hometown in Texas, which is the same county Joe Bob is the sheriff of. But he currently doesn't live in Texas, so he's got to go there and, you know, make arrangements and all all that horrible thing to go through. But his, his girlfriend uh, wants to go with him, and he kind of explicitly states, no, you stay here. I, I got to do this. And it, it's very kind of explicitly stated this man has a former life back in Texas that he's not proud of. And he's been clearly running from, from a long time as when he gets there and checks into his hotel, everyone's telling him, Hey, we don't want any trouble while you're here. Cause you know, you and your brother and all, and when he goes to the old diner, um, he gets harassed by one waitress there that clearly he did something to in the past that he doesn't even remember, which is where Joe Bob intersects with him and takes him and kind of rescues him from the situation. But he does tells him, Hey, I'm just, he takes him a cruise around town and, He's not under arrest, but he wants to answer some questions, which at this point, Randall learns that they didn't even tell him on the phone, but his brother isn't just dead. He's been murdered. So there's a whole investigation going on. So that's going to set the tone for, I think, issues now two through six. Well, issue one kind of worked in a very kind of almost closed issue, which was like almost like an introduction lead into this world of that Texas blood. But I, I, I still enjoy it. I think Jacob Phillips's color work um, and the sequence in the desert at the beginning was quite beautiful with his colors of the of the yellows and purples kind of invoking an early morning in the desert. And uh, the the panel boxes also being purple to like kind of reminisce on what like a sunset cloud looks like um, or sunrise cloud looks like was a very, very cool decision to use. And, uh, you know, the yellow text as well also made everything pop. Vince, I'm wondering what you thought about the color work here, because I thought it was absolutely fantastic by Jacob Phillips. But uh, Chris Condon's writing style, once again, this was a movie script that was turned into a comic book. 
He was, it, it seems to be, at least from what I can gather, he's a, he's a filmmaker, an amateur filmmaker that has turned this script into a comic book as he couldn't get the movie made or sold, and at least has sparked a friendship with Jacob Phillips. And I think Phillips designed some movie posters for him, which is where they started their working together, which I could be wrong on that. At least that's what I think I read. I can't remember. But that's, uh, that's issue two, which is very much a lot of setup, but I, I still enjoy it. And, you know, Jacob Phillips's art um, was the reason why we came here to read this as this is his first ongoing uh, interior sequential work and not just kind of one shots here or there coloring on criminal but uh i think it's really good it's obviously invoking a much younger sean phillips being his father but i, I like condon's writing here um i said issue one reminded me of like a coen brothers movie here i'm still kind of get the coen brothers vibe but maybe a little christopher nolan uh thrown in there but i am interested to see where it goes vince this is your first time reading this book what do you think yeah, I actually did get the chance to read both of these first two issues. I really enjoyed it. I think um, despite, you know, the, I don't know what Chris Condon's background is. He has like no followers online. I don't think he has an IMDb page. So he may have been, if it was a film direction, he may have been very early into that and then he shifted and now he's early into this. But whether he is coming from the script writing background or kind of no background or what, but I think his writing here is actually, for someone who's literally, far as the editorial says, never written a comic before, I thought the writing was pretty solid. He has a little bit, you know, occasionally you see moments where there's good beat rhythm between dialogue. Um, there's, some there's some snappy lines and things like that. People are speaking believably, but not annoyingly. He is not from Texas. He's from New Jersey. Sean Phil... Uh, Jacob Phillips, definitely not from Texas, not from this country, but I guess Chris has a friend who inspired some of this, and obviously Texas is a very interesting place. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. This issue has a roll credits moment. Yes, it does. I, I can't tell. I, I, can, I can never tell whether how I feel about those. Um, I guess it depends on execution. This one's not like in your face. It's not like it's the title page or something like that. But yeah, I don't... This is in a weird spot where I think this is actually a very, very strong series and issue. I think the writing is good, like I just said. I think the art is good. I think the coloring is fantastic. But it's just the fact that the first issue has a preview for Pulp in it. The fact that the first issue, Sean did a variant. The fact that Jacob colors for his dad and his art style. The thing is, I can't even like, I'm not even 100% sure that his art style is like, super close to Sean's there's definitely some of it but I feel like the coloring you know you're and obviously knowing the names behind it you're definitely looking for more connection which might not 100% be there but you just can't help but look at this book and be like oh this is criminal light which is fine because criminal is like a a perfect comic book so this is like the 95th percentile um, you know, the, the good knockoff, but it's, it's in a, it's in a weird place there where it's really, really good, but it's very, very similar to this thing on so many levels. I, I would have to say at least comparing Sean and Jacob's artwork, Jacob's artwork reminds me of a younger Sean Phillips, where I think Sean has gotten more to kind of more painted, more like a darker, thicker line work, what we've seen with more recent criminal. And I, 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 I don't have the giant hardcovers yet because I, 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 you, I remember in college, you gave me the first volume, which is Coward to Read. So that's the only thing from first round of Criminal I've read. Um, and there's, you know, thinner line work and not as much detail there. 
which I think that invokes why, where Jacob art, Jacob's art looks a lot more like young Sean. While, you know, Sean Phillips has had 20, 30 years to hone his craft here. They're going to look much similar. It's not, it is quite kind of cool to see compare and contrast, but I think this is also a series that really lets Jacob go crazy with his color work, which we've already seen to be very, very good in criminal, but the, his scenes out in the desert were just breathtakingly beautiful. And especially with the way to color the boxes of narration and even the text color, I think, or just components that, you know, keying into something more to look in depth on to compare this and that with criminal. And like you said, it's hard not to compare the two because they're both so intrinsic, intrinsically tied together. Um, it seems that the, the color work here, I think, is what really separates it a lot. But yeah, it's still really, really good, and I want to see where it goes. But I mean, I'll definitely love to have this on a shelf next to my Brubaker and Phillips work, as it's a very nice companion. And I hope to see something else from Chris Condon too, um, as well after this, because so far, two issues in, it's been a very good debut. I guess the final question for you is, are you aware of the Spotify playlist, and have you been listening to it while you read? No. Um, I did see it mentioned. I'll have to find it. Yeah, it's on it's on Chris Condon's Spotify uh, playlist. There's two playlists. There's one for issue one itself, and then there's now a second one for issues two through six. So just interesting to note in case if you've been reading with that or not. Um, I tried to read with it, so it's a pretty fun experiment to do. But uh, heading into arguably the biggest release of this week, at least from DC, definitely, One Roman number 759, the debut of Mariko Tamaki, uh, by the way, recent Eisner Award winner and uh, Michael Mikhail Janin on art with Jordi Belair on colors. So kicks off a new era for Wonder Woman with a new run with at least on the surface an all-star creative team. You know, we have a writer who just want, took home the Eisner Award uh, for best writer. And, you know, art team, we've seen Mikhail Janin um, and Jordi Belair's work on Tom King's Batman, which I've always been highly praiseful of. So, you know, pretty good tier, high tier team on this book. So definitely when the preview started, I, I was excited. I think you were excited as well, but I don't want to speak for you. But I think structurally, this works as a very much an issue number one. And I think that's a detriment to it in the sense that this issue is used to center around and show us who Diana is and who Wonder Woman is with a montage of superhero feats, which are very cool to look at um, and some memorable moments. But the big centering around Maxwell Lord and I, you can't not draw the comparison to it. I think this comes out due to the movie synergy because, you know, if the world was normal at this time, Wonder Woman 1984 would have been out by now and Max Lord's in that movie. Then we see Diana moving into her new apartment, which it looks like she's in Washington, D.C., but I can't remember if she was in D.C. in the 2000s run by Rucka. She might have been as well, but who knows. Where she meets uh, one of her new neighbors who has a bunny rabbit. Um, pretty cute moment there is they she takes her to Ikea because she has never, somehow never bought furniture before despite you know, living in man's world for a crazy number of years at this point. And also like new continuity wise, she's, you know, been a, she's, she's the first superhero. So that's weird. But in the parking lot, there's this crazy runaway driver and the mom is possessed by something. And Diane is able to stop the car in a pretty, very pretty cool action sequence. And this leads her to break into a prison where Max Lord comes face to face uh, with Diana, and it's going to be his choice, whether woman, Wonder Woman kills him or works with them. And the eternal narration here by Diana by diana is really keeping in the concept of justice and how it's gray and not simply black and white so there's this now no straight line thing with who are the heroes and who are the villains so it looks like we're going to see a wonder woman and maxwell lord team up i liked it but i think effectively as a first issue 
Um, I think that's what's holding it back. And, uh, you know, I'm going to stick with it, obviously, to see what comes. But I wish this was able to kick off in a different way than kind of re-explaining who this character is. It feels like that's a big thing when in DC, um, at least in DC, maybe not so much as Marvel, but I might be putting my foot in my mouth when I say that. Uh, by just not having a direct comparison offhand. But it seems like whenever a new, a new writer takes over on a DC book, the whole first issue is like a reintroduction of a character instead of simply taking over from where we left off. But uh, I did enjoy it, though I wish Max Lord has stopped being used as simply a device for, remember when Wonder Woman killed him at the end of uh, Infinite Crisis? It seems like those two moments are tied together forever now. And I wish we could simply move past that being like the single iconic Wonder Woman moment we've had in the past like 20 years. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said. I actually was fine with this as the first issue because I don't expect, I mean, Wonder Woman is such historically such a mess that I don't expect people to have read the previous 758 issues or whatever the actual number should be in this current volume. Um, I mean, you know, Greg Rucka had a decent enough 20 issue return or however long it was, but then like who, like everything since then, which was like years ago, it's like, and every, everyone was trying hard. Um, you know, everyone, I'm not shit talking, but like, this is the issue that I do think a lot of people are going to be trying more. Um, I think DC was able to hype it, um, effectively creative team is is on a hot streak and bringing in different audiences from both sides. So I, I, ho- I hope this run gets a little bit of a bump and uh, I thought it was a good showing. I really like Janin's depiction of Diana. I think the body type is perfect, though it's not it's it's not quite the full on like Amazon physique as you would see from John Byrne or George Perez or Darwin Cook or something like that. But I, I like the way it's done here. And the face, the face is good. I really like how he depicts her, her face and also just in the civilian scenes. Then the action and superhero stuff is great as well. And I actually think sometimes Janin, in my opinion, can be a little bit static, but I didn't feel that in this issue at least. I'm confused by the Max Lord portion of the recap because I don't understand the current continuity of Max Lord and Diana. Because it's like, uh, she did something to Max Lord, but it's like, in this continuity, did she kill him? Did she, well, quote unquote, kill? Did she snap his neck? I don't know how that works. Did Infinite Crisis happen? Who knows? I like this new supporting cast character, Emma with the pink hair, the rabbit, and the memory loss. I hope she sticks around. Um, honestly, when I saw the rabbit, I was like half expecting like a total curveball Zatanna guest appearance. Um, <laughs> But that is not what happened. Yeah, and then the Ikea thing, it, that just totally doesn't land to me. I know what Tamaki is trying to do. I wonder if it was even like editorially suggested where they're infusing some of that fish out of water element that the movie brought to the forefront. But she's been in man's world for years, yeah. longer than Batman, Superman, any other character has been a superhero, which... Even in the weird New 52 slash fixed continuity is relatively long time. I mean, bat, you know, it used to be Batman was fucking five years ago, but that's fixed. And I think it may have even been doubled, if not more. So 
she's been around 10 years more than that and she's never heard of ikea it's just stupid but i thought this was actually really strong and, no, and again i like the issue i thought it was a strong issue i just think it has a lot of the uh the kind of the tropes of an issue one yeah uh, you kind of run into and and again i get the movie thing i get the whatever maybe it makes sense um but not just the fact that you're using Maxwell Lord and going back to Infinite Crisis, but this and the movie, it's like, is Maxwell Lord a one woman villain now? Because of that one moment, which was a part of a crossover event. It's just weird. Like this one iconic moment has just made him. I mean, I guess it's similar to like, I don't know, characters like um, Bullseye or, or not Bullseye. I don't know what I'm thinking of. Just. <laughs> characters that like switch or like kingpin i guess um, yeah what about uh what about like kind of dark side's been really a kind of adopted as a dc villain not really just a new gods uh villain at this point yeah yeah well that's kind of the opposite where it's like yeah. you're elevating a villain to to a line-wide status so that's like yeah. like like dc has done with dark side what they what Marvel did with Norman Osborn or something like that. Right. It no, looked... no, I, I'm looking forward to the run. I like the art team. I really like the color work um, on Diana when she uses her powers. It almost looks like she's got like the glow around her, like a glow aura that like I think that Disney's Hercules has, which is kind of cool. Yeah. I think they did a, I think they did a good job showing off some of her different kinds of feats and uh, using those couple like montage double page splashes essentially to show all of her different connections and things like that. You see her fighting uh, God of War for a panel. You see her with the Justice League and then running after the car using her sword and shield, whatever. It's all conveyed well. You ready for X-Men Corner? Yeah. X-Men number 10 written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Lionel Yu. We literally just read Empire X-Men number one by Hickman last week. But I guess this is X-Men number 10, an Empire tie-in by Hickman. Thanks. So Petra and Sway here just want to get drunk while Vulcan is brooding. And I just want none of these characters to ever appear in an X-Men comic again. But Vulcan walks away. He's wandering on the moon. And he runs across the Katadi's plant thing, uh, their garden. And he fucks them up. He, like, incinerates them. And I guess he got fucked with aliens earlier, so he's very edgy. Honestly, I'm blanking if this is supposed to be referencing earlier stuff or if this is a new retcon thing. And then we get like one page of a Summer's, swim, a summer's Family swimsuit special because everyone but Vulcan ditched him to go have a family vacation on the beaches of Chandelure. And then there's like some dumb, like ominous thing teasing how the Kotadi need to want to invade Wakanda for whatever reasons, but it's like, isn't that being covered in the other series, X-Men empire? This, this was a down issue. I mean, every other issue of this X-Men series from Hickman, it's like, Oh, here's an interesting idea that I'm not going to get back to. Or here's an issue that's like, I don't really give a shit about. Like, I, I, I fucking hate Vulcan. Yeah, the minute I saw this issue was going to be entirely centered on Vulcan, I was like, well, Vince is going to hate this. 
Um, and I, I don't know who Petra and Sway are, so I, I've this is my first exposure to them. No, no. I thought Pet Emma for a second. Petra and Sway are two of the Je uh, Deadly Genesis team. They're two of the ones. Oh. That so it was Vulcan, Petra, Sway, Darwin. That might be it. Oh yeah, that that pre-team that uh, that other team Charles sent in. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I thought it was all right. I. I, I don't explicitly hate Vulcan as much as you do. I just don't care about Vulcan. I actually did just I'll throw out a random realization. Hickman's um, Mora House of X retcon, probably the biggest X-Men retcon since Brubaker did Deadly Genesis and introduced Vulcan. Yeah, probably. I, I can see that. The only time I've been exposed to Vulcan was during Rise and Fall of Sheer Empire, and I didn't like him in that. And I yeah. don't really love Rise and Fall Sheer Empire either. Yep. Um, yeah, this is... I, I liked him expl just exploding everything on the moon, though, to get rid of the Katati. That was kind of cool. But, you know, my, my bigger gripe with all of this comes in the fact of if we're going to have X Empire X-Men, why is X-Men tying into Empire? You should keep two of them separated, not tie in both. But obviously money is the factor. And our final book of this week's rundown is... X-Factor number one, which I was looking forward to. This is Leah Williams and David Balione. And this is the debut of a new X-Factor investigation, which I guess is the second iteration of it after one of my favorite runs of the early 2000s, which was the Peter David run. North Star wakes up and senses that his sister Aurora has died. So he rushes to the five for them to resurrect her, but he stopped and he's, because number one, he's cut in line and he doesn't have proof of, proof of death. The five have been backed up with resurrections and need to prioritize who comes back for what. So in order to move things along, they have been asking for proof of death so they can, you know, investigate. So if there's any foul play, the X-Men can, you know, investigate that. Um, and at the lagoon that uh, North Star gets pointed to, and he's talking to Blob, who I guess is, we saw this in X-Force as well. I guess Blob's job on Krakoa is just to be the bartender in the lagoon, which is pretty funny. He runs into uh, Polar. Polaris, who is like, hey, you're doing this all wrong. Let's help investigate this together. So they send out feelers for help to look for Aurora and what happened to her. And they they get, so they know, also they figure out that she went to Vancouver and that's where she disappeared from after leaving Krakoa. So the team they get together is Prestige, Rachel Summers. I guess this is her name now. I don't remember when she went by Prestige. This might be like a long-term thing that I've just never known, but who knows. Prodigy, iBoy, and Dokken. So we get the whole crew uh gathering and then we go to the last scenes of aurora's disapp disappearance and we all see them work together using their powers to kind of piece the puzzle which is kind of a really fun and cool idea that all their powers make sense for uh how they would go about a detective investigation of a missing persons and they find that she was put up in a fixed car that was uh and ran off a bridge and drowned um, which was put up by this anti-mutant kind of bigot guy who and also because it was like raining and he didn't calculate it right he also got killed in the stunt. So they have the body and they bring it back to the Krakoa where they're presented to the five and they call a meeting with the quiet council to ask for the reformation of X-Factor investigations, which its goal is to now specialize in finding the missing mutants and provide the five help with re resurrections. And they set up a tip line with like the flowers um, that all gets tricked out by Forge because Polaris constructs this new building that they are now dubbing the Boneyard, which, you know, I already said gets tricked out by Forge for setting up their system of alerts and where to go for investigations. And then Polaris also defers leadership to Northstar. So that's our team. That's our premise. I liked it. I 
it got better as the issue went on. I thought some of the dialogue was kind of bendacy at some points with the kind of one word, you say one word, I'll repeat one word back. Um, but it got better throughout. It felt long too. Like this almost felt like a, a pilot of a TV show that's like 90 minutes and not just, you know, 45. So uh, interesting to note there. I also like the fact that the team wasn't really in costumes as they're not superheroes. They're private investigators, which, you know, Hankins back to that Peter David run, not really anyone wearing a costume in that run until much later on. I think until like issue 250, they finally start wearing costumes again. But this is good, not great. I don't love the art team, and but I'm going to give at least issue two a second shot, but I don't know how long I'm really going to stay with it. Any thoughts here? I don't think you have any, though. I didn't really read it. Um, I, I will... Um, confirm that Prestige is a Mark Guggenheim X-Men Gold. So that's thing. recent. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, at this point, that might have been like three, four years ago, but relatively. Was that three years ago? Oh, my God. <laughs> I feel old now. But other than that, that's the show for this week. Any picks of the week? Pick of the week. I'll give it to... That Texas Blood, um, yeah, I'll give it to that Texas Blood number two. I would say my runner probably Hedra, and if I could pick just the Legion slash Superboy story from Cybernetic Summer, I will highlight that once more. Okay, uh, I love that Texas Blood number two, but I think for pure and because there's the jumping on point where it's very fresh, I am actually I am going to give my pick of the week to Wonder Woman number seven fifty nine. Um, I am critical of the trophy tropeness of it but I, overall it's a very good issue and everyone should jump on here if you're interested in reading wonder woman comics uh vince you started the show by saying that you didn't have a good week but hopefully after talking comics for an hour it, the week was able to be made a little bit better maybe yeah <laughs> but that's the show for this week follow us on twitter and instagram wear a mask when you go outside practice social distancing all that jazz and uh month of august next week Thank you.